Lely told me that these grasses on the prairie may have 12 to 14 feet deep roots. And so they are not moving. They are not leaving. It's a metaphor for the people. They are not moving. They are not leaving. This is their land. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today I'm talking to D.G. Nanuk Okpik, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Poetry, about Lely Long Soldier's 2017 poetry collection, Whereas. D.G. is an Inupiaq Inuit poet raised in Alaska and currently residing in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She's the author of two collections of poetry, Corpse Whale from 2012 and Blood Snow, which came out in 2022 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. My cat's going crazy. I know. I was going to say our listeners can't see that we have an extra visitor in our podcast. What's your cat's name? Uh, Blue. Blue? You're kidding me. No. That's my cat's name. No way. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's great. I got it from the famous story of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, that's beautiful. And I love that story so much that... That I had to name her Blue, even though she's not a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mistakenly thought our cat was a Russian Blue uh, when we oh, got him. Oh, and yeah. uh, and then we found out when we first took him to the vet that he was just a gray cat. Yes. And, uh, and, and we were like, well, we're going to call him Blue anyway. So. Yes. Well, she has blue eyes and blue-gray <laughs> blue oh, yeah. hair. So nice. that nice. came, came yeah. easily for me. So I wonder... Could you tell us a little bit about Lady Long Soldier? Like, who is she? I mean, when her book Whereas came out, she just really immediately popped on everybody's radar. I mean, it, it was everywhere. And this book has had such a significant impact on American poetry over the last, what is it, five or six years since it came out. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about Lely. I know you two know each other. You graduated from the Institute of American Indian Arts. You live in the same general area. And you also have the distinction of being the first guest on our show who actually appears in the book that we're talking about. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, Lady Long Soldier is my girlfriend, my friend, my confidant. She's a mother, but she's a mother of her mother also. She's an intellectual and she's an artist. She is one of those poet warriors that Joy Harjo speaks of, she's deep within the olden voice of justice, law, and equality. And I think of her in admiration of her lifelong learning of language. She is, like me, not knowing the language growing up, but we we had the language introduced to us and we decided to learn together. She brings in to her poetry a sense of humor and she brings in this raw, wry sense of language that is a distance and a longing, but it's also a comfort and belonging. You know, language is really at the center of this book in ways that I think are unique to her sensibility. You have these poems early on where she's learning Lakota, and you, you get this sense of this person who is sort of outside of the traditional language of her ancestors and trying to make a connection with them and with that cultural realm through the attainment of that language. But you also have these poems where she is looking up words in English 
her native right. language, quote unquote, in the dictionary, there's that sense of just being completely alienated from her own language and how weird language sounds to somebody who seems to be operating slightly outside the limits of both languages. Yeah, I think the language she uses is very strong. And um, she actually enrolled in law school. And once she got down there, she realized the language was so thick and so dense, telling and not showing. And she found herself immersed in that legalese. And that language is just crippling to people that don't understand it. And she got to learn to read in legal terms. But she decided later she, she just couldn't. She was a poet. She wasn't a, a lawmaker or... <laughs> She could do it better in poetry. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there's a really interesting tension between legal language and poetic language. They have this purpose, which is to restrict language to the narrowest possible set of meanings. Yes. Right? It's to like it's to take a word and to make sure that it doesn't move. It this is it means this thing in this instance, and you build a kind of architecture around it to make sure that it doesn't move. And poetry is doing the opposite, right? Poetry is putting the word on the page and then removing all of that architecture so it can kind of shimmer and have all of its meanings or as many meanings as possible at the same time and have them all glint there in, in, their, in their glorious ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, Translation is a is a sliding, you know, it's a sticky situation because translation can be lost from word to word, from Lakota to English or English to Lakota. You lose a sense of what the essence is of the word unless it's descriptive around it and can show to the world what these words really can do in a sentence or in a paragraph or how they can be placed together. Early on, I, I read the dictionary. Like I've read the dictionary over and over. Not the whole dictionary, but words that I didn't understand. I think Laylee was the same way. I would tell her, Laylee, read the dictionary. Look at the dictionary. Look them up. Look up the words. Find out what they do, what they mean, what they say, what they sound like. And we did it together. We both had dictionaries, these huge, big, five-inch thick dictionaries, and we would just spend time understanding the words. It would be great to hear some of Lely's poetry. Um, would you read some of the opening poem, the one that starts with the grasses? Okay. Now, make room in the mouth for the grasses, grasses, grasses. One, he is a mountain as he is a horn that comes from a shift in the river, throat to mouth, followed by Sapa, a kind of black sleek in the rise of both. Remember, he Sapa is not a black hill, Paha Sapa by any name you call it. When it lives in the past tense, one would say it was not red horn either. Was it not a rider on horse on mount? And did it not lead a cavalry down the river and then? Not the coy to ambush and me buckle. 
to 10, 20, perhaps even a horse face in water. Its rank is a mountain and must live as a mountain, as a black horn does from the base of a black horn tip. See it as you come, you approach to remember it. This is like gravel. Two, because drag changes when spoken of in the past, i.e. he was dragged or they drug him down the long road, a pale rock and brown. Down dashed a knocking path, and to drag has to begin point, though two are considered. Begins when a man is bound. Begins also the first tug. So we take the word to our own uses and say, it begins with his head on the ground, with his hair loose under shoulders and shirt with snaps. Their mother of pearl. Then begins a yank, a slide, begins his skin and scalp, begins a break, a tear, red to pink, to precious white, and then begins what is his skull of star to bone. Well, why don't we just talk about that short, beautiful poem that begins it? Yeah. Now make room in the mouth for grasses, grasses, grasses. Yeah. That command at the very beginning, now make room, now make. That's very military. That's very driven and very direct, telling you to, to make room. You have to make room for us that are coming across the land and manifest destiny of placing Native people on reservations and taking them from their land. A lieutenant or a military figure said, let them eat grasses, let them starve, let them eat grasses. And I think that really impacted lately. They said, just let them starve. If they're alive, it's okay. If not, that's okay too. Just let them eat grass and fill their mouth so they can't speak and they can't scream, they can't yell, they can't do anything. Well, the Lakota said, we're not leaving. We're going to fight this. And they fought it for all their their existence here till today. And I want to say something about the grasses. Laylee told me that these grasses on the prairie may have 12 to 14 feet deep roots. And so they are not moving. They are not leaving. It's a metaphor for the people. They are not moving. They are not leaving. This is their land. These grasses mean so much to them. There's also this repetition as a tool to remember who they are, who the Lakota people are. And by being rooted in those grasses 10 to 14 feet deep, you can imagine how deep the family and the people are deep within this land that they love and that they come from. It's life-sustaining, and you got to realize how deep that runs in human nature, that deep-sustaining connection to the land and the people that you know. So that command at the very beginning is now make, and it is making that space in the mouth to sound out Room in the mouth, the sound of the O's and the O-U, that sound brings out the next line because you can honestly see how vowels and how consonants work 
in the next line. Room, mouth, grasses, grasses, grasses. The hard sounds of grr, a, like apple, and the s's, like the sound of slithering snakes. That's what I think. It's such an interesting opening poem because it, it's so short. And yet, as you beautifully said, it can be read in all of these different registers and all of these different meanings. And so I kept hearing it against some of the other poems in this book. You know, you could take it in like specific direction as you listen to it beside any one of these poems, right? Part two in the poem Hisapa about the man being dragged. There was this part of me that couldn't help feeling that if you're somebody who is, say, being dragged by the feet along the ground right mm -hmm. like your mouth is going to be in the grass mm -hmm, and right. you're going to be forced to make room for the grass in your mouth and I yes. feel like the way that this poem is constructed it allows you to keep returning to it again and again and again and it mm -hmm. really makes it a, a powerful opening yeah it's a metaphor of imagery comparing the mouth as 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 a room to make room in the mouth mm -hmm. to make a whole room of your mouth filled with grasses yeah and then the now mouth right it makes you almost start chewing right it does make you start chewing and i think that that motion of chewing goes through the books i mean i think that there's times when she brings up the grasses just subtly and on page 63 she brings about when they swallowed and that's halfway through the book more than halfway through the book it takes all of that writing and all of that knowledge to explain before they swallowed. And that in itself represents the time and the long distance of these rooted peoples to their land. It brings about a sense of longing because the longing, the distance, I keep going back to those two words, but I do think that Lely was longing and the distance between her homeland and her physically living in the Southwest growing up gave her a very different reality and a very different way of learning. She always wants to go home. You know, that's just, and me too, we, we always are longing for home, but we know that we can't do it at home. We have to do it in the city or suburban cosmopolitan area, which makes it a separation also, moving to the city, that's what colonialism brought about, is moving, moving us to the metropolises to work and to find a trade. And then coming back home, we always want to bring our knowledge back home and to use it in a way that's productive and use it in a way that is giving to the world. And I think Rayleigh does that. And even though she's young, she has this great expanse of deep-rooted natural knowing to the land and to the people and to their belonging. We always have this sense of moving back and helping the community, giving what we've learned through the world and bringing it back home to teach the young ones as elders. And I think that she does that in a very good way. Uh, we probably don't have time to read the whole thing, but would you read a bit more of it? Three, this is how you see me in the space in which to place me. This space in me, you see, is this place. To see the space, see how you place me in you. This is how to place you in the space in which to see. Four, 
but in a small way to begin, for I could not, as I am limited to few words at command, such as wandering. This was how I wanted to begin with the little I know, but could not, because of Womble, this eagle of my imagining, is not spotted, bald, nor even a nest eagle. It is gold through by definition, not ever the great golden eagle, much as the gold by no mistake is not brown gold, man gold, or nugget. But here it is the gold of light and wing together. Rings that do not close, but in expanse angle up so slightly. Plunge with muscle and stout head somewhere between my uncle, son, father, brother. But I failed to begin there. But I failed to begin there with this expanse, much as I failed to start with the great point in question. There is a muscle in the high inner flight, always in the plunge we fear for the falling. We buckle to wonder what man is expendable. Five, inside the wheels of wrists and hands, a white straw or book and shell, I kneel in the hairline light of kitchen and home, where I remember the curt shuttle of eyes down, eyes up, where I said, are you looking of how I've become too? This one combs and places a clip just above her temple, sweeping back the curtain of why and how come. I kiss her head, I say, Maybe you already know. Born in us, two of everything. As in each born to our own crown, the highest part of the natural head. And each born to our own crown, a single power, our distinction. But I'm dragging myself, the other me, every stand up to the surface. I remember very little. So I plunge my ear into the hollow of a black horn, listen to speak, but no one word sounds as before, circuitous, this I know. It's really interesting, the, the structure of that first part of the book, right? It, it starts mm -hmm. with this very small poem that is not entirely clear where the meaning is dependent on the sound and you're pronouncing it and hearing it out loud and feeling the way it moves your mouth around and then it kind of moves through a lot of different phases but I do feel like it's a search to get somewhere and I think you know one of her ways of doing that is trying to find her place within these two different language systems and sort of mm -hmm. feeling outside of that but there's this also there's also this really interesting meta-narrative or the self-reflexive quality to the work where she's oftentimes she's doing this thing that you're never supposed to do in a poem which is to say here I am writing a poem trying to think of what to say in this poem that I'm writing right now that you're reading but she does mm -hmm. it so cleverly throughout and I feel like that's kind of part of that journey of like stepping outside of herself and being aware of herself 
herself and acknowledging that and recognizing that in order to sort of come back to herself. And so I think it's really interesting as you pass through all these phases, this first section of the poem ends up in this really different place. Like it's this poem 38. And I think this is probably one of the more read and shared poems from this book, partly because it dramatizes this really horrifying moment in American history that runs counter to a lot of America's ideas about itself and its own heroes. And by talking about this moment where Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, on the day he wrote the Emancipation, wrote the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation, <laughs> had 38 Native American men hung. And it's this, it's this haunting moment in American history. It's a, it's a moment in American history that most people don't know about. And I feel like there's a real power to moving through this first section of what feels like a personal quest or a personal journey mm-hmm. through language and through understanding and through self-knowledge to then run right into this historical moment that is a real contrast to the openness of that opening poem about the grasses. Mm-hmm. I think that when she says, I do not consider this a creative she considers it not creative, but telling or showing the mm. history of the people. Mm. 38, when you think about it, um, they're hung at the neck. Mm. And at the neck, it's not far from the mouth. Mm. How are you going to swallow? How are you going to, if your mouth is full of grass, how is that going to affect you? You know, what what it's going to make you die quicker or is it going to make you die slower? You have your mouth full of grass. You can't speak. And what does that legally mean, that mass execution? What does that mean in history? And she brings it about on page 49, exactly halfway through the book. That's interesting to me because she made room then for the grasses in this 38. I think this book, it causes you to choke up. It causes the reader to choke in so many ways. I love how the opening poem is almost repeated at the end of this, right? Because the the tone of this poem is really kind of, uh, it's matter of fact, it's, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it legalese in the same way that no. she uses whereas in the beginning. It's just this kind of like flat, unaffected presentation of information, and it's like one fact following another, following another, right. following another. But then it ends in the same place that this section of the book begins. Right. So the book opens now. Make room in the mouth for grasses, grasses, grasses. And then it's almost the same poem to end this, to end this piece, right? Right. And let the, and let the body swing from the platform out to the grasses. Yeah. Then and it's not the, the grasses, grasses, grasses. It's the mm-hmm. grasses, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting move there, poetically, to come back to the crystallized image of those grasses. It feels like a moment maybe of a return to homeland, as you were talking about, or a return to some life after death. Um, mm-hmm. And then, because you're, you're eating the grass, and then you're on the grass, but then you're also kept from the grass, because they put them in, in corrals, the people in corrals, mm. and, and wouldn't let them out. 
So they didn't have access to the grasslands when they were, um, you know, in bunkers and in prison and, and things happening like that. They, they couldn't get out to the grasses to pray or to have ceremony. And another thing, the ceremony, the grasses, it's, it's not in the permanent state. I mean, we know that it's alive and it has birth, life, and then death. Well, when we pick the grasses, we pray for the life to continue through the grasses to us and leave into the community. And these grasses, when you burn them, you actually change the substance of the grass to smoke. And that smoke then blesses the people or blesses you in ceremony and takes away all of that, um, that ill feeling. And so you can then purify yourself. And I think right here in this book, in the middle of it, Maylee is jumping out to the grasses as she's swinging from the platform. She mm. goes out to the grasses and she's able to die and jump into the grass and be free. Mm. And so she's maybe saying um, in this part that she's breaking free and that she's going to go out to the grasses. Okay, you've already done this to us. Now what can we do? And then she goes right into whereas. Which rhymes with grass. <laughs> right. Exactly. Which is insane, right? It's insane. It's got that S sound to it. And that, that. Oh, it's incredible the way she does it. <laughs> for any listeners uh, who haven't read Laylee's book, we should probably give some context for the title poem, Whereas. There's a there's a brief introduction where she talks about how in 2009, uh, President Obama signed the Congressional Resolution of Apology to Native Americans. No tribal leaders or official, official representatives were invited to witness or receive the apology on behalf of their tribal nations. He never read the apology out loud or publicly, although for the record, Senator Sam Brownback five months later read the apology to a gathering of five tribal elders. So it's this kind of, I don't want to quite classify it as a non-apology apology because mm. um, I think that that's not quite accurate but I think she's very sensitive to the ironies of this kind of apology that is not made to anyone in particular <laughs> if an apology falls in the woods right is anyone there to hear it does it exist right. um, and uh, I think that sense of irony and a kind of unwillingness to actually accept responsibility like to, to perform the, the necessary act without uh, accepting the responsibility that comes with the performance of that act runs through this. And then the refrain of the word whereas also runs through it. And whereas is this word that begins clauses in a lot of legal documents that qualifies them. It does that thing that we were talking about at the beginning, right, with <laughs> legal language, right? It, it tries to refine language down to a single meaning uh, and, to, and to hold all the words in place. And so, you know, as soon as you think you know what a word means, we say, whereas, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it, and, it, and it refines it one step further and one step further and one step further until it means like as little as possible with as little ambiguity as possible. And yet, as we know from the performance of this apology, there's a lot of ambiguity left, right? And we, and as all Native people know the you know an apology from the United States is much like a treaty from the United States. There's a lot there's a lot that's left unsaid that uh, that that means a lot of really horrible things for the people that are on the other side of that apology or the si other side of that treaty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
and their absurdity shines through, even though it's done covertly, is out in the space, it's out in the world, it's out in um, um, the realm of the audience now. And she's able to cathartically move through the piece, um, lay down what she needs to, leave the rest for the people who need it along the way. Then she's able to swallow breathe, make room in the mouth again to speak. So she's not choked, hung, or killed. And her voice then shines through as living language and not language that is dead or the people that are, you know, dead. They they like to think that all native people they've killed off, you know, the colonial the colonial thing think tank. And they have it. I mean this is proof in living language that they haven't done what they, you know, set out to do in helping the people. They've only destroyed the people. And this was a slap in the face. It was it was definite emphasis of disrespect in the way of the government. And um, it takes a long time and a lot of work to imagine that it's true, but it is true. You know, it's 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 a part of history, but the different people's history. Whereas that moment I knew who I was, whereas the moment before I swallowed. That last line of the piece is so important mm. because now the grasses are being swallowed. You know, they were choked, they were hung and the grass was fed in their mouth and then they swallow and i think for Lele, she she doesn't mm. swallow mm. you know she doesn't eat the grasses she'll mm. spit them out the second they're in her mouth you know in in a way that is healing but also explaining how this came about and what can be done from here and giving all the possibilities of what can move from here and leaving the poem open and not closed. I think it's important to see too. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Libraries, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.